Please turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel 29. First Samuel 29, where we're going to pick up again with David's story. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll remember that the author of 1 Samuel has been swinging back and forth between David and Saul. Chapter 27 described David's move to Philistia, but then chapter 28 recounted Saul's dark night of the soul, and now chapter 29 swings back and picks back up with David. So you can see what the the author of the biblical book is doing. He's, He's setting up this one final contrast between the two men, between David and Saul. And that contrast is moving closer to its conclusion as we draw near the end of the book. So 1 Samuel 29 is where we're at, and I invite you to follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commander of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign, for I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning, and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Would you pray with me? Father, we know that it is an incredible evidence of grace to be given the Word of God and to be able to hear it. And so we ask, Father, that You would be gracious to us now, that You would open our ears and that You would soften our hearts and that You would illuminate our minds 
to not only understand the Word of God, but to believe it and to then live in response to it, Father, to obey what it says and to be corrected where it corrects us and to be guided where it leads us. We pray, Father, that You would work this grace among us now. We ask, God, that You would give us grace in that You would keep me from error and that You would grant Your people discernment. What the people of God need most is to hear the Word of God, proclaiming to them the Son of God, crucified and risen for their salvation. So would you do that now today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. You've probably heard that pithy quote before. I used to hear it a lot from my mom whenever she would catch me in the latest scheme that I had concocted to try to fool my sister into giving her, into, fool her into giving me her dessert after lunch. My mom would say that statement to me often. The saying's often attributed to Shakespeare, but it actually comes from Sir Walter Scott. The poem that Sir Walter Scott wrote that contains that line was a bit of a flop, but the pithy quote about getting tangled up in a web of your own making, that pithy quote has caught on. And that's likely because most folks can relate to getting caught in a web of their own making. Sometimes we're too clever. Sometimes our schemes work too well. And we end up in a situation that we've made for ourselves, but there's no conceivable way to get out of it. As we come to 1 Samuel 29, we see that Sir Walter Scott's quote could very well describe David's life at this point. David is stuck in a web of his own making. The background to this passage, you'll remember, is found in chapter 27. David had grown tired of running from Saul, so he decided to move and seek refuge among the Philistines. And on one level, David's plan worked. Saul gave up his hunt for David, and for a time, David and his men found relief among the Philistines. But that wasn't the whole story, was it? In order to keep the plan going, David had to put up a front for Achish, the Philistine king. David had to convince Achish that he was a loyal servant. And so David spun this story. David began constructing a web of stories, in fact. He told Achish that he was making raids against the people of Judah, when in fact, David had been raiding against the enemies of Israel. You see, he, he was spinning a story. And over time, David's story worked. Achish came to believe that David was loyal to the Philistines. That's where David's web started to get a bit tangled. We saw this back in the first two verses of chapter 28, and it remains true here at the outset of chapter 29. Achish is preparing to fight against Israel. That's what Philistines do. They fight against the people of God. So Achish is preparing to fight against Israel, and he expects David to fight alongside him. And, and why wouldn't Achish think this? David and his men are willing and capable mercenaries, and they've supposedly been making these raids against the Israelites for about a year and a half. So of course, Achish would say, get your sword, we're going to go fight these Hebrews. Why else? Why would he not think that? You see, David's stuck in a web of his own making. 
Of course, having read the passage already, you know how it ends. David ends up not having to fight against his own people. He's delivered from his dilemma. But, did you notice, friends, that David does nothing to get himself out of the situation? He doesn't do anything. In fact, he's pretty passive in this text. At least when it comes to addressing his problem, David escapes, that's true, but he doesn't escape because of anything that he did. And so, the key question of the chapter is this, what accounts for David's deliverance? Why does he escape from what would surely have been a catastrophe? Well, the answer, brothers and sisters, is simply this. The mercy of God. David escapes by the mercy of God. From start to finish, that's the theme of 1 Samuel 29. In His mercy, the Lord delivers David from a dilemma of his own making. David spins a web, gets caught in it, and in His mercy, the Lord delivers him. Now, some of you might be thinking, that all sounds really nice, Jeff, but I don't see the word mercy in this chapter. And you're right. There is no explicit mention of mercy in the text. Chapter 29 does not have a thesis statement announcing to us the following passage is a discourse on God's attribute known as mercy. There's nothing like that. There's no mention of the word mercy, at least not explicitly. And yet, at the same time, we must remember what kind of book 1 Samuel is. This is not merely a work of history recounting the rise of Israel's monarchy. To be sure, the book is historical. Don't misunderstand me. 1 Samuel is historical. It's not less than history, but it's more than mere history. This is theological history, or better yet, this is redemptive history. Every event is narrated from the perspective of God's work on behalf of His people. And that's particularly true in the life of David, the Lord's chosen servant. So I guess you could read this passage and conclude that David simply got lucky. I mean, you could read these 11 verses and just say, man, he was really fortunate. But that would be a rather dull and misguided way to read the Bible. You see, the subtlety of the story is intended to capture your attention. As we watch the events unfold, we're meant to marvel not at David's luck, but at David's God, who is with David every step of his life. And perhaps, friends, that will cause us to think back over our own lives and see afresh with eyes of faith all the ways God's mercy has been with us as well. The theme of 1 Samuel 29 is mercy. And the fact that it's subtle should make it all the more thrilling. It's not enough, however, to simply note that theme. The richness of this text comes out as we see the specific ways in which God's mercy is evident. So that's how I'd like to spend our time now. I'd like to draw your attention to three aspects of God's mercy on display in David's unlikely deliverance. Three aspects of God's mercy. The first is found in verses 1-5. to Sometimes God's mercy confounds our expectations. Sometimes God's mercy confounds our expectations. 
Verses 1 and 2 again set the scene for what is happening. The Philistine army is heading for Jezreel, which was in the northern part of Israel, where they intend to decimate Saul and his forces. The Philistines are a picture of military precision, marching out by the hundreds and by the thousands. And there in the back of the Philistine parade, we find David and his men. Like hired guns, they march alongside Achish, their Philistine protector. Now, the text does not give us any indication as to David's mindset or to his motives. Was he anxious as they marched? Did he really intend to fight against Israel? We're left to speculate as to what was going on in David's mind. But what we can say with certainty is that the situation doesn't look good. I mean, forget fighting against Israel. Even showing up at the battlefield with the Philistines is a really bad idea. So we may not know what's going on in David's mind, but the reality of the situation remains clear. He's headed for trouble. This is not a good place to be. Then in verse 3, though, something unexpected happens that ends up solving David's dilemma. Notice again how this plays out, beginning with a question. Verse 3, The commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? You can understand their confusion. If we're going out to fight against Hebrews, why are we taking Hebrews with us? You don't have to have military training to know that that is not a good strategy. Akish, however, tries to set their minds at ease. Notice again verse 3. Akish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. Once again, we're reminded of how well David's scheme has worked. Akish is totally convinced of David's loyalty. Notice how he says David has deserted to him. He thinks David is a traitor. He believes David is now his loyal servant. Sure, he used to be Saul's servant, but now he's my servant. That's what Achish believes. Again, David's scheme has worked, but perhaps it's worked too well. Mercifully, however, the Philistine commanders are not convinced. In fact, they're downright furious. Notice their response. First part of verse 4. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. That is, with Achish. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in battle he become an adversary to us. So Achish's defense falls on deaf ears. The Philistine commanders can see very clearly where this is going. If David goes into battle with them, he could very easily turn on them and join forces with his fellow Israelites. In fact, that's what they expect to happen. Notice the end of verse 4. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? You see, the commanders of the Philistines understand that if David were to ever have the chance to reconcile with Saul, this would be it. David may be at odds with Saul now, but that's nothing a few hundred Philistine heads can't fix. And for that reason, the commanders are emphatic in their rejection. David must not go with them into battle. And if that argument wasn't strong enough, the commanders add a closing flourish. It's actually a sarcastic jab at Achish. Notice verse 5. Is not this David of whom they sing to one another and dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. 
You catch the first words of verse 5, is not this David? In Hebrew, that's the same phrase that Akish used back in verse 3. Is not this David? You see, the commanders are exposing Akish's blindness at this point. Akish has forgotten who this man is. This is the man who struck down Goliath, and you're going to give him a sword and put him next to you in battle? This is the man who led Saul's armies to numerous, numerous victories over the Philistines. Do you really expect him to turn on his own people? You're a fool, Akish. That's what the commanders say. And with that final flourish, the Philistine commanders win the argument. Notice verse 7. Akish is now speaking to David and he says, So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. Friends, do you recognize what this means? Verse 7. David's dilemma is over. It's over. He's been delivered from his tangled web and he will not have to fight against his own people. But, and here's the key, how did it happen? How was David delivered? Through the intervention of his enemies. Do you see it, friends? The inscrutable, astonishing mercy of God? In His mercy, God uses Israel's enemies to deliver Israel's future king. By questioning David, the Philistine commanders end up serving David. Their suspicion is the means of God's mercy. Brothers and sisters, we should marvel here at this unexpected but undeniable divine deliverance. From our perspective, it might seem that David has nothing left but to suffer the consequences of his foolish decision. It might seem to us that David has not a friend remaining in the world to help him in his time of need. And yet, what does the Lord do? The Lord mercifully turns David's enemies into David's friends. The Lord answers David's foolishness with mercy that could not be expected. This is the great depth of God's mercy, friends. It's not bound by our expectations and it's not thwarted by our self-imposed dilemmas. And therefore, our response here should be one of worship. I want, to, I want to be clear on this point. The application of this chapter is not that we can make a bunch of foolish decisions and then just trust that God's going to give us mercy. That's not the application of this text. That's an unbelieving response. God's mercy is often unexpected, but that's never an excuse for foolishness. Instead, our response here should be one of worship. We should marvel that our faithful God has an unlimited number of avenues through which He can extend mercy to His people. He can use Philistines. If you belong to God through faith in Christ, then you may stray at times into foolishness. You may get caught in a web of your own scheming and still God's mercy can reach you in those moments. Do you believe that? That's not an excuse for foolishness. It is a reason for worship. So I would encourage you, just, just pause here for a moment and think back on your own life as a believer. Remember those moments that seemed so fortunate at the time, and instead of calling them luck, why not call them mercy? Let David's experience inform your own and marvel at the ways in which God's mercy confounds our expectations. It doesn't come the way that we might always expect. This is the mercy of God. And we should worship Him for that. The second aspect of God's mercy comes in verses 6-10. to 
and it follows closely on from the first. Sometimes God's mercy keeps us from ourselves. Sometimes God's mercy keeps us from ourselves. As we just saw in verse 5, the Philistine commanders convince Achish to leave David behind. And in verse 6, Achish begins to inform David of, of that decision. And yet, even as he tells David to go, Achish can't help but defend what he perceives to be David's loyalty. Notice how strongly Achish believes this. Look at, again at verse 6. As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign, for I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. It's not too surprising that Akish would use the Lord's name. Remember, Akish is a pagan. He worships idols. So he would have no problem appealing to David on the basis of David's God. What's one more God to Akish when he always, already worships a bunch? So it's not surprising that he would use God's name. What is surprising, however, is how misguided Akish is at this point. You see, as readers of 1 Samuel, we actually know more than he does. We know the whole story. Akish has found nothing wrong with David precisely because David has kept the truth from him. That's why. It's an ironic twist in the, in the story. It's a little shot, a little jab at Akish for being so dense. I like how one Old Testament scholar has put it. Throughout the Old Testament, the Philistines are presented as being rather dim-witted. It's an insult to call someone a Philistine because it means they're dense. No exception here. Here we have Achish defending the man who has deceived him and defending him to the very end, even though he's completely deceived. Even so, Achish has been overruled. David must go back, and the decision is announced in verse 7. You got to go back, go peaceably, get out of here before they change their mind. You got to go. Then comes the most difficult part of the chapter, verse 8. David objects to being sent home. Notice again what he says. But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go out and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? So what are we to make of this? Why is David objecting when Achish is letting him off the hook? I mean, doesn't part of you want to scream at David, what are you doing? Keep your mouth shut. Get out of there. It's, conf it's confusing. It's hard to interpret. How should we understand this? Well, we should rule out the possibility that David actually meant to fight against Saul, let alone God's, God's people. Remember, David has already spared Saul's life twice. And what's more, David has gone out of his way to care for Israelites in need. You can go back to chapter 22 and you can see the evidence of this, how David took people into his care who were distressed and who were enduring hardship. So it's inconceivable that he would now turn against his own people. We can rule that possibility out. Still, that leaves us with verse 8. Why does David object to being sent home? There's a couple of possible explanations the first is that David is simply keeping up appearances at this point. He knows he's been let off the hook, but he can't display his relief or else Akish might become suspicious, so he feigns disappointment to just keep up the charade. 
That's one option. You could take it that way. The other option is that David's plan all along has been to turn on the Philistines in battle, and he's truly disappointed to see that plan fail. If you look at verse 8, it could be that David's language is purposefully vague when he says that I may fight against the enemies of my lord the king. Which king? Saul or Achish? So it could be that David's plan all along has been to turn on the Philistines and fight them in battle, and that's why he's disappointed. For my part, that's how I take verse 8. That David did intend to strike the Philistines, but now he's frustrated. So his plan all along has been to set up this double agent scenario. Except all that work to get to this point, and now it's for nothing. So David objects in verse 8 because he's frustrated. He's frustrated that the last part of his grand scheme falls short. Friends, I'll contend that what David counts as frustration should actually be counted as the Lord's mercy. God is protecting David from leaning on his own understanding. Remember, that's how David got into this problem in the first place. Chapter 27. By merely showing up in the ranks of the Philistines, David would have risked his reputation in Israel. It doesn't matter if he, if, he, if he never lifts a sword. If he just shows up on the front lines next to the Philistines, he's done. All the good will he had won over the years would have evaporated in an instant. What's more, this would have been a dangerous plan at best and an outright suicide mission at worst. In order for this plan to go right, everything's going to have to break just exactly in David's favor. So what does the Lord do? In His mercy, the Lord keeps David from Himself. He keeps David from Himself. Brothers and sisters, consider how instructive this should be for us. We often think of the Lord's mercy as keeping us from things we wouldn't want. As keeping us from things that we wouldn't, cho- that we wouldn't choose to endure. And and that's true. Praise God, the Lord does often protect His people from things we would never choose to receive ourselves. But, and here's the key, but if our understanding of God's mercy only covers those unwanted things, then we've actually missed the depth of what Scripture teaches about our God. Sometimes the Lord's mercy protects us even from ourselves, from the things that we think would be best. And this, in turn, should change how we think about the Lord. Listen to me for just a minute on this. Far too often, I'm afraid, we think poorly of God. We think poorly of Him. We assign emotions or motives to God that are contrary to to, to who He is. So, for example, when God closes a door, we think to ourselves, well, He's just holding out on me. Or when He answers our prayer with a clear no, we assume that He's being miserly or even harsh. Do you ever think like that about God? I'll confess that I do. I'm so quick to assume that God is like me. That sometimes He's just moody. That He says no just because He wants to say no and watch me squirm. That He's holding back the really good stuff. And that's why He closed all those doors on my perfectly conceived plan. I had it all worked out, God, and You're not letting it happen. 
Friends, that kind of thinking not only dishonors the Lord, but it also grossly misunderstands who He is and how He works. Sometimes God closes doors because He's merciful. Sometimes He says no to your prayer because He loves you enough to keep you from yourself. Do you see how knowing the character of God can change your response? Think about the the difference this would make just on an everyday basis. Do I still have that closed door? Yes. Do I still have the answer of no to my prayer? Yes. But now, I respond to those things on the basis of who God is and not on the basis of how I feel. God's mercy, hear me on this, God's mercy becomes the lens that helps me see the world and my experience in it in the right way. And so, I remind myself in those moments, no, Jeff, God is not holding out on you. He's not being harsh or capricious or moody. The Lord is merciful in all that He does. So this could very well be His mercy to keep you from yourself. Friends, if we want to be godly people who live God-centered lives that glorify the Father, then we have to learn to process life in this way. Listen, we're all theologians at heart. Every human being that you meet is a theologian. And what I mean by that is we're all processing life on the basis of what we believe to be true about God. You do this as a Christian, and the atheist does this as a person who denies God. We all process what happens to us on the basis of what we believe about God. We all have these these glasses on, and the lenses are the truths we believe about God, and it's through those truths that we see and respond to the world. So, if you want to interpret your life correctly, you have to know God's character deeply. You have to get the right lenses in there. And this is just one example of why this is so important here. The lens of God's mercy and how it works God's mercy not only protects us from things we would never choose, sometimes His mercy keeps us from ourselves. And for that, we should give Him thanks and praise. As we move towards the close, there's one final aspect of God's mercy we need to see. It comes in verse 11. At all times, God's mercy is relentless. At all times, God's mercy is relentless. Verse 11 might seem like little more than a concluding summary, but it's actually the finale of a well-composed passage. 1 Samuel 29 is very skillfully put together with verse 1 and verse 11 working like bookends to get your attention. Notice verse 1 mentions the location of Jezreel. The Philistines are marching to Jezreel, and David is marching with them. But now look at verse 11 at the end, and notice what has changed. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Did you catch it there? It's a repetition of the place. The Philistines have arrived at Jezreel. It's repeated from verse 1. But David is not with them. You see, it's a small detail that's massively important. David is not at the battle line. 
He was bound for Jezreel in verse 1, which would have been a disaster. But by the time we get to verse 11, David's been delivered. You see, the Lord would not be stopped. In His sovereignty, God did whatever was necessary to deliver His servant David. Did David deserve this deliverance? Well, no. But that's the point. From beginning to end, 1 Samuel 29 is about the Lord's mercy. This is our God, brothers and sisters. He is relentless in His commitment to be merciful to His people. David knew this truth quite well. This is how David understood his life to work. He was convinced that the Lord's mercy would keep after him. He was confident that the Lord's mercy would reach him even among the Philistines. We know David viewed his life this way because he told us as much. Psalm 23 that we read earlier in the service, perhaps the most well-known passage in the entire Bible. How does Psalm 23 end? With David declaring, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Dale Davis points out that our English translation of that verse is actually not nearly strong enough. It's not simply that God's goodness and mercy follow us. It's that God's goodness and mercy pursue us. They chase us. That was David's confession. God's mercy would not relent. When David strayed into foolishness, the Lord's mercy pursued him. When David wandered into Philistia, the Lord's mercy kept after him. And that gave rise to his confession, surely goodness and mercy will chase after me all the days of my life. And I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Friends, if you belong to Jesus Christ today by faith, David's confession is your confession as well. The triune God will stop at nothing to show mercy to His people. So, we will wander off on our own. We will fall into foolishness. We may even end up stuck among the Philistines. And still, our God will not relent. So the next time you read or remember Psalm 23, think of 1 Samuel 29. God's mercy is not just following us. He's pursuing us. He's chasing us with mercy. And He will not stop until He brings us once more to Himself. And that's good news. Amen? Let's pray.